Let's find our way to Acts chapter 4. Please and thank you. Acts chapter 4. Love for you to follow along with us in God's Word. Prepared and preserved and delivered for each one of us to follow along. On theguardian.com, you can find a great article titled, Don't Try to Defend Yourself in Court, But If You Have To, Here Are Some Crucial Tips. That's my kind of article. Some of the advice given there includes remember your audience, play the system, strike a deal. At the end of the list, though, they close with this plea to the reader, don't do it. All this advice is easy to give, but you probably don't have the time or the resources to understand things as complex as the rules of evidence and procedure. It's near idiotic to represent yourself in court, and if you can't avoid it, you should. Thanks, article. In our passage this evening, Peter and John are going to be brought to trial before the Supreme Court of Israel. They'll have no human attorney there to represent them, of course, but that's okay because Peter isn't going to worry about defending himself. Instead, being filled by God the Holy Spirit in just one sentence, he will have turned the tables completely around and suddenly it is he who is putting the Jewish ruling establishment on trial, indicting them for the murder of Jesus Christ and for rejecting God's Messiah, the cornerstone on which all of life should be moored and measured. In this regard, Peter's message is the same as it's been in chapters 2 and 3. Peter's doing a lot of talking in these opening chapters of Acts. And his message is generally the same, explaining that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ is risen, and that his audience are the ones responsible for Christ's death on the cross. However, in the earlier cases, Peter's preaching was to just generic crowds of Jews there in Jerusalem. Today in our text, he's speaking to a very specific, very particular group, which comes onto the scene as a new character in the Acts story. It's the Sanhedrin who become the first antagonists toward the church. There were different factions of religious Jews. You probably know this if you're a student of the New Testament. There were zealots. There were a group called the Essenes. There were, of course, the Pharisees, who are the most prominent in the Gospels. We see a lot of the Pharisees coming against Jesus Christ and his ministry. But in the book of Acts, it is the faction of the Sadducees that takes center stage when it comes to opposition to the Gospel. There's some debate concerning the Sadducees about where they came from and what exactly they were all about. None of their writings have survived for us to study today. And ancient historians that did report on them, men like Josephus, they may have had reason to be biased against the Sadducees. And so it's not always clear if uh, they were being all the way fair in their reporting. But from what we know, the Sadducees were aristocratic, probably pretty wealthy individuals, they wanted to cultivate good relations with the Roman Empire and maintain the status quo, politically speaking. They only held the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as authoritative and got rid of the rest. They rejected all oral traditions, all rabbinical teachings. They didn't believe in things like angels. They didn't believe in an afterlife or immortality. And according to Josephus, the ancient historian, they attributed all human activity to free will and nothing to the providence of God. 
In that sense, they're described as what we would call deists. Sure, there's a God, but he has nothing to do with what's going on on the earth today. And everything you see around you is just pure human free will. God's providence, that's not a thing. Fate, that's not a thing. God having a plan, that's not a thing. After all, why would there be a plan? There's no afterlife. You live, you die, it's over. I read these descriptions of the Sadducees, and I find it easy in my own mind to sort of immediately categorize them away as, well, those are the bad guys. They're completely other from me. They've got nothing to do with me, nothing to do with my mindset at all. But you know, as these guys are introduced in the book here, and they're going to become prominent characters, prominent villains in the book, there's an interesting contrast being shown. So far in our uh, studies through the book of Acts, we've seen the wonderful example of J- the Jerusalem church in her infancy, their gathering together, their unity, their behavior, the kinds of things they were doing, how they sought the Lord, how they studied his word, how they devoted themselves to their faith. It's not all going to stay unblemished, by the way, uh, but thus far through the book, it's been remarkable, and we've been enjoying taking a look at that. But now in chapter 4, you suddenly have a gathering of a different group of, Jer- of religious people there in Jerusalem, and they stand in contrast to what we've been seeing in the first couple of chapters. They're called the Sanhedrin. They're the ruling body over Israel, like the Supreme Court, but with a much more religious bent. We know from the Gospels that there were true seekers among the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, for example, real seekers who were, who were seeking after God in a real way. We know that they, too, spent a lot of time in the study of the Scripture. After all, that's what the scribes were all about. You're reading the Gospels or in the book of Acts, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, that's what they were all about, studying the Bible seeing what God had written in the Scriptures. And yet it becomes immediately clear here that this group was tragically closed off from God. They become the first persecutors and primary opponents of the church and of the spreading of the gospel. Now, we as Christians here in the church, this is the way we think of it is like a believer's meeting. Maybe there's somebody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You can know him tonight. He can save you from your sins if you'll call out to him. But in general, we consider this sort of a believer's meeting. We're saved individuals by and large. The Sanhedrin, as a group, they're not saved individuals. As a group, they had rejected Jesus of Nazareth despite the proofs of his divinity. They held to a works-based righteousness. And of course, we know that we're saved by grace through faith. So significant big differences, right? But their example here on the page can be significant to us because some of the spiritual mistakes that they made are ones that we are warned about even in the church by the Lord. We see through the New Testament that even God's people, even the church can slide far out of proper relationship with the Lord. We never want to slip into a mindset where we think we're good, we never need to tune up, we never need to make adjustments, we're just good and we can cruise on autopilot for the rest of our spiritual lives. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to get to them in a little while. They had some real problems, even though they were believers. Think of the church at Corinth. We're studying the book of Corinthians on Sunday mornings, and man, you don't want to go to the church at Corinth. Why? Because they're so off base. They're so disconnected from what the Lord really wants them to be doing. It's crazy. 
Think of some of the letters that Jesus wrote in Revelation 2 and 3 to the churches in Asia Minor, where he says, hey, I'm coming to kill you. You guys are doing such a bad job at what you're supposed to be doing. I'm going to remove your lampstand. Hey, this lady over here, I'm going to kill her with sickness, and if you follow her example, I'm going to kill you too. And so, you know, we have these warnings uh, of things that are important to the Lord and ways that even God's people can drift off course. We have warnings like, hey, don't quench the Holy Spirit. All sorts of uh, boundaries and warnings and instructions to us. And so when we come to a story like this one, we don't want to always immediately think, well, I'm not the one on trial here. I'm not the Sanhedrin. That has nothing to do with me. Rather, we want to have tender hearts like David, King David there who said in Psalm 139, Lord, search me. Lord, know me. What did he say? He said, Lord, try me and then lead me as you tell me what you find and and then show me which way I need to go. And so perhaps there is something for us to learn here from the negative example of the Sanhedrin there in chapter 4, if only using them as a litmus test for our own faith. Do I share any of the attitudes or behavior of these Sadducees in particular? Because these are the kinds of mistakes that will cause us to drift terribly off course as individuals and as a group. And so we begin at verse 1. Now as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. After the healing of the crippled man there at the beautiful gate, thousands of people had come together in the temple courts, and Peter was in the middle of a sermon to them, when suddenly all the authority of Israel swoops down on the apostles. And you look at this list, it's the civil, the religious, the political powers all represented and suddenly show up and take Peter and John by force. Peter and John weren't inciting violence, they weren't causing a riot, they weren't telling people you need to tear down this temple, anything like that. But their message of salvation in Jesus Christ was enough to provoke this retaliation. And they, you know, they had to know that this was going to happen eventually. I don't think that Peter and John were surprised that this was going to happen. Uh, Maybe they didn't know it was going to happen that day, but I'm secure in the idea that they knew that this was coming. Because after all, they themselves had been in hiding in fear of these religious rulers just a few weeks ago, right? They're hiding in the upper room behind locked doors because they think, oh man, they're going to come for us because we're disciples of Jesus. And we remember that Jesus had promised them and explained to them that they would be treated this way when they preached his message. And these, after all, were the same powerful leaders who had conspired to kill the Lord and then cover up his resurrection. And Peter's going around saying, hey, remember how you people conspired to kill the Lord and how you're guilty of murdering the Son of God? And yet Peter and John didn't avoid the temple. In fact, they went there every day in faith and in fearlessness. But now it's happened. The guards laid hands on them and dragged them off, lock them up for the night. Now, as lovers of free speech here in America, we get a little riled up with what we see here, right? We think, hey, he didn't do anything wrong. He's just preaching a little sermon. Although on one level, the priests and the police were within their legal rights and duties according to the law of Moses. Here's why. In Deuteronomy... God's people were very specifically instructed that if anyone came and worked a miraculous sign in their midst, even if the sign was genuine, uh, but then they were preaching some other God, well, you needed to ignore that message and kill that person, right? And so Peter and John had clearly worked a great sign, 
And they were definitely preaching a new kind of message, at least according to the ears of the priests here. But that wasn't the primary motivating factor in why they were arrested that day. We're told more of what was going on in their minds in verse 2. It says, because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead and using Jesus as the example. And so there are three things that annoyed these leaders, especially the Sadducees. First, that they were teaching about a resurrection. Sadducees had control over the Sanhedrin at this time. And they, of course, completely rejected that idea. We have that famous incident where the Sadducees come and confront Jesus during his ministry, and they give him that weird hypothetical about the woman who married seven brothers, and, who, and he says, yeah, you guys don't even believe in the resurrection, right? And so they rejected completely the idea of an afterlife or a resurrection, and so they're annoyed that this is being preached in their you know, front porch here. They were also agitated that Peter and John had the attention of so many people, it says. It says that they were, pre- that they were teaching the people. And the Sadducees, and particularly the chief priests, were enriched by the people's patronage there at the temple. And again, when you go back to the Gospels, you see that the ruling class had set up a little bit of a scam there in the temple, right? Jesus went in and cleansed the temple of the money changers and those doing business there in the temple. Well, the chief priests and these different rulers were lining their pockets, and the more people that there were, the better things were for them. And so uh, when someone comes along and is starting to draw the attention of lots of those people, well, that was getting uh, under their skin as well. Any threat to that temple system was a threat to their wallets. And then third, we're told that they were annoyed that they used Jesus as the example. Remember, these were the very men who spent time conspiring to have an innocent man killed, a man they simply couldn't outwit, they couldn't outmaneuver. They kept trying to find ways to trap him or to stop him or to silence him, and they just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't. Finally, they said, okay, well, let's figure out a way to murder this guy. Let's put on a fake trial. Let's get Rome to destroy him. And then they have finally, they thought, did it got him hung on a cross. They thought, okay, we're finally rid of this Jesus, but now thousands of people are listening to his message once again. Now, what's clear from their reaction here is that the Sadducees and the others, by extension, uh, they had absolutely no interest in a further experience with God. And here's why we can say that. Look at the Sadducees. They think, okay, we have our five books. We don't need anything else. We have our wealth. We'd like to hold on to that. We have a generally good political relationship with the Roman Empire. Uh, I have no interest in really talking about what God might be doing. He's gone somewhere, has nothing to do with us anymore. Stop talking about the kingdom. Stop talking about heaven. Stop talking about resurrection. Stop talking about transformation. We have no interest in any of those things. You are putting sand into our finely tuned you know, gears here. We're happy with the way things are. We're happy with the status quo. Sure, our nation is subjugated by a godless, you know, pagan empire, but who cares? Because after all, we have position and we have wealth and we have, you know, comfort and all these things. And they had absolutely no interest in learning more of God or going deeper with God or seeing God do some of the things that he had done throughout their history. Think of the history of Israel the kinds of things that their God did for them, bringing them out of Egypt with a mighty arm, right? Working wonders, stopping the sun in the sky, doing all of these things. And the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees in particular, had no interest in any of that. 
What do we want more of God for? Just stop that. We've got comfort, we've got riches, that's what we want. We don't need anything else from this God that we claim to worship. It's a good moment for each of us to put ourselves on trial here and ask, okay, do I want anything more from God? Do I want him to do anything dramatic with my life? Do I want him to take me on some new adventure? Or would I feel happier just sort of living in the status quo until the day we die and sort of telling God, hey, God, thanks for salvation. That's great. It was nice to unload my sins on you, and I'll take it from here, and I'll see you at the pearly gates, buddy. You know, and and unfortunately, I think we can, as human beings, slip into that kind of mindset. I don't know, I'm, I'm good. I have what I want, and I'm living, you know, the life I want to live right now, and I'll see God when I see him. And we don't want to have that kind of mentality. That's a Sadducee mentality. Verse 3 says, so they seized them and put them in custody until the next day, since it was already evening. There's an interesting contrast, I think, between the group of the Sanhedrin and the group of Christians here in this verse. Think of what we've seen concerning the activity of the church so far in the book of Acts. They're always on call, always being interrupted. They're going house to house, day by day, night by night. And that's only going to continue as the book unfolds and as the Holy Spirit will just periodically all of a sudden whisper into the ear of one of his servants, go over here and do this. And they say, yes, let's go. Peter's like getting ready for lunch and the, whole, you know, the Lord comes to him and he says, actually, I have something I want you to do right now. Go with these guys when they show up to your house. And you think about Philip going down. He says, hey, go down and sit on a desert road. And and you think about how they're on call and how they're always ready and how they're just ready to drop everything to do what the Lord is leading them to do. And it's a really great thing. Now, by contrast, what do we see here? Well, the Sanhedrin, something big has just happened in their temple, right? Something really big. Uh, But they can't be bothered to investigate what's going on here. They're not going to take the five minutes to say, hey, what happened? What was he talking about? Peter, we went through his sermon last time. It only takes a few minutes to explain what happened and what he had said, right? Well, no, they can't be bothered with that because after all, man, it's the end of the workday. I started packing my stuff up like five minutes ago. I'm not unpacking that again. It's inconvenient to get into this right now. Now, we know that the Sanhedrin weren't opposed to doing after-hours proceedings if it was in their own interest, Right? They were more than happy to convene in the middle of the night to hold an illegal trial for Jesus Christ, right? Get everybody together. We got to take care of this right now. Uh, you look at that night before the crucifixion for proof of, yeah, they, if they were motivated, if they thought it benefited them, they were happy to go and get gathered together and that sort of thing. But today in Acts 4, man, it'd be inconvenient to learn about how this crippled man that they'd walked by for years and years and years was suddenly miraculously fully healed. Yeah, I can't be bothered with that right now. Instead, they throw those guys in jail even though they hadn't done anything wrong. Hey, we'll get to them when it's convenient. We live in the most comfortable and convenient time in all of human history. We can serve up anything we want at any time we want. And the problem is, you know, we're able to do that with our spiritual lives on some level as well. But God doesn't always wait for my schedule to come out before deciding what he wants to do and when he wants to do it, right? That's fine to schedule your life and to plan things. That's all fine, right? But God isn't subservient to my schedule, If there's a band that you want to see, right, and you think, I I want to see them perform, I want to go to that show, you don't call the band and say, okay, I'd like you to come to this venue on this day, and that's when I'm ready to hear you guys. That'd be absurd, right? You don't even have their phone number. 
And yet it's easy for us to sort of be drawn into a spiritual mentality of, hey, I'll interact with God when it's convenient. It's not really about following after God. I'll just serve up spirituality when it's easiest for me, when it's convenient for me, and uh, when I, you know, feel like doing that. I'll gather when, with God's people when convenient. I'll serve when it's convenient. I'll listen when it's convenient. And we just want to be careful about that and recognize that, okay, we live in the most convenience-oriented culture and time in all of human history. And we have lots of teachings and ministries and opportunities available to us at our convenience, right? And that's a great thing, podcasts and opportunities and all this stuff. The fact that those are available at our convenience, that can be a great thing, but we then need to remember, okay, but we're supposed to be following God in our personal spiritual lives. We're supposed to be following after as he's leading according to his plan, according to his will. And God's plan doesn't wait for us to order it up the way that we want it to be. Now, Peter, we see, is ready to be led by God day by day, no matter what, no matter when, even if that means being led into a jail cell. And that's quite a far cry from who this man was just a few months ago. Remember, last time the guards came for Peter, he started swinging swords at people and chopping ears off. He wasn't going anywhere with anybody. And man, he's been transformed by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's a wonderful thing. Verse four, but many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Thousands listened to a simple gospel presentation and believed it. But I find this interesting. It says many who heard the message believed, not all. We take that for granted perhaps, but remember that means that many others in the crowd that day were looking at conclusive proof of God, a crippled man who was supernaturally healed. They all knew him. They all knew it. It was right in front of them and they still would not believe. Not that they could not believe, they would not believe because salvation isn't about seeing proof. It's a matter of the heart. People watched Jesus walk around for, you know, 30 years and be in a public ministry for three and a half years. And who, and there was only a couple people at the foot of the cross, everyone else had forsaken him. They watched him raise Lazarus from the dead and the Sanhedrin said, well, we better kill both of these people then. Bertrand Russell, he was a famous atheist of uh, the 20th century. His ideas influenced Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist of today, uh, he once said this, he, that he would be convinced there was, he might be convinced there was a God if he heard a voice from the sky predicting all that was going to happen to him during the next 24 hours. But you know, a heart like that can look straight at an indisputable miracle and just reject it, like many in the crowd that day. You know, it's not a matter of proof, it's a matter of man's will. And so we think, oh, you know, why doesn't? Why doesn't God just reveal himself and show himself and everyone would believe? God did reveal himself. He walked and talked and worked wonders and people wouldn't believe. And we see another example of this here. It talked in our last passage about how everybody knew this crippled man. He was over 40 years old. He was there at that temple gate every single day. It was indisputable. Look, this guy is completely healed. And a bunch of people looked at that and said, nah, I don't believe. I won't believe. I don't care what these people are saying. I'm going to ignore that and go on with the rest of my life and pretend like that didn't happen. 
Verse 5 says, The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you might think, wait a minute, I thought Caiaphas was the high priest. Well, he was. Annas had been the high priest but was deposed by the Roman government. After him came a succession of a bunch of his sons being high priest for a relatively short period of time. Caiaphas was Annas' son-in-law. He was the current office holder as far as Rome was concerned, but for the Jews, Annas was the man in charge. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been put on trial or interrogated in an official capacity. Uh, I was once briefly interrogated by some fine Tulare police officers who caught me and my friends TP in a house in the middle of the night one night in junior high. It's a very unpleasant experience, very nerve-wracking. With that tiny drop of interacting with justice and being on that side of, of an interrogation, I can't even imagine standing before the Supreme Court being put on trial for a potentially capital offense, knowing that they had every intention of getting rid of me as fast as they could. But man, Peter and John are at peace. They're not stressing about this at all. We note that there seemed to be a particular focus there in the group on certain quote-unquote important people. Ooh, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. It's human nature to get drawn into the culture of celebrity. It can happen even in the church. We don't want to be the kind of people who go to a church or support a ministry because some celebrity is there. We're to go where God leads us, be attached to the people God wants us to be attached to, not just go where we think the stars are shining the brightest. Verse 7 says, after they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? The apostles had probably been roughed up a bit, intimidated and threatened based upon the language and reading between the lines a little bit in the whole chapter. Now they're being asked a question that could have deadly implications depending on the answer, and yet none of this had any noticeable effect on Peter and John. Verse 8, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Hold there. Filled again. Now, wait a minute. How can a person be filled full at Pentecost, but now be filled again just a short time later? By the way, they're going to be filled yet another time at the end of the chapter. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great preacher uh, of a previous generation, gives the answer in vivid language. He said, they leaked. I love that. If you're not familiar with Donald Gray Barnhouse, you should go serve up yourself his podcast and just listen to it when you get a chance. It's great. He says, they leaked. These men had to be filled, and they were filled and filled again. You must come to the Lord day by day for constant filling with the Holy Spirit. And then Barnhouse goes on to compare it to a car that needs oil. My first car was a 1963 Chevrolet Corvair. Corvairs always leak oil. That's just part of the fun. It's part of the experience. If your Corvair's not leaking oil, it's because there is no oil in it. And so you always kept oil with you. And if I, anytime you go to the gas station, well, I got to check my oil. Yep, it's low. And you got to fill it up a little bit. And so you're regularly checking the level. You're regularly topping it off so that you keep the engine from blowing up. And the principle is really very similar when it comes to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We need constant filling because we leak. And sadly, we probably all know Christians who have effectively no relationship with the Holy Spirit. Not because he doesn't want to have a relationship with them, but because it's just, yeah, I, I, you know, I have a Bible and you know, I have salvation and yeah, I, 
I have, a, I have no interest in God interacting with me day by day. I just live my life. And that's a sad thing. What about us? When's the last time I was filled? And I'm not asking the last time I felt something that seemed unusual, but when's the last time I pulled out the dipstick from my heart and sort of checked the level and received the ministry from the Holy Spirit to fill me again? When it says Peter was filled here, it means that he was furnished for the task at hand. I love that. He was generously supplied. He was strengthened. He was given that peace that astounds anyone who's had to stand trial before. And that's what God wants for each of us today as well, to fill us and to furnish us and to keep that spiritual engine properly running. Verse 8 continues, Peter said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Within a single sentence, Peter took over the proceedings. He's no longer the defendant. He's the prosecutor, and he's indicted this group of people for what they had done, not to him, but to God. And notice we see that not only is John standing beside him that day, so is the healed man. This healed man was there. He says, hey, this guy right here who you see standing in front of you, now he hadn't been arrested, but he showed up to the trial that day. What amazing courage. This guy had only been a Christian for 18 hours. He maybe didn't even know Peter and John's names yet. And yet he's transformed, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Strong enough and fortified enough and bold enough to stand alongside these guys, Peter and John, who are maybe going to receive capital punishment based upon what has just happened. His presence there that day shows us a variety of things. First, it shines a light on the shocking hard-heartedness of the Sanhedrin. They didn't care about this man. They had no wonder at his healing. To them, it was, would have been just better if he just had stayed crippled the rest of his life so we didn't have to be bothered with any of this. They weren't praising God for his power or his grace in the situation. The Sadducees are too worried about their money and their convenience and their influence. But the healed man's presence here also shows us his incredible, tender courage in the Lord. You know, he didn't have a lot to offer that day. He's only been a Christian for a few hours. He doesn't know what being a Christian means, other than that he's been filled with the Holy Spirit, right? He maybe has never heard anything that Jesus had taught. He just knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the risen Lord. And so he didn't really have anything to offer. But you know what? What he could do, he did do. He stood to honor God and to support the brothers, come what may. And he's a great encouragement to us that even the smallest act of faithfulness can be used mightily by God. God can use you standing still somewhere to accomplish his work if he wants to. That's a mind blower to me. You can just stand somewhere and because of the transformative, empowering strength of God working through you, God can accomplish something through that like he's doing here. He can use your countenance. He can use the look on your face to minister to people. We see that in other parts of the Bible. He can use your silence to minister to people. He can use the simplest things in our lives when we give ourselves to him. That morning, this man stood, not just in solidarity, but he stood there as proof of the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. 
And then turning from exhibit A, Peter now focuses on Jesus as the promised Messiah by quoting Psalm 118. Peter was a Psalms guy. He says in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Donald Gray Barnhouse again, he writes this, the cornerstone keeps everything from falling apart and by which God makes all his measurements but man seems to prefer to have everything fall apart rather than accept Jesus as the cornerstone. You know, the Sanhedrin knew this verse, of course, but they had misapplied it. They made the, this verse about themselves. They said, oh, the cornerstone, that's about Israel. That's about us. And they had completely misapplied it rather than making it about the Messiah. And I was realizing this seems to be a trend right now, particularly in regard to Bible prophecy. Not everywhere, but in certain corners of the church where churches are taking passages that are meant to speak of our Lord, of the coming Christ, of his certain plan for the world. And they're saying, ah, that's about my life. That's about how I feel. We've been joking around the office because we've been hearing messages from a couple of different places about that going through Revelation, not just one church, but multiple churches, and talking about how the seventh trumpet is, is like, it's like the, the things that are happening in your life right now. No, it's not. It's just not. It's about the coming king. It's about the Messiah. It's not about me. It's about his plan for the world. We heard one where I was talking about the four horsemen. Are they riding through your life right now? No, because you'd be in the great tribulation and you'd see them and it would be the worst thing that's ever happened. It's the same mistake the Sanhedrin were making. They took this prophetic verse and they said, oh, that's about me. That's about how I feel. And so we want to be careful students of the word, not self-absorbed ones. We want to be careful. Now, perhaps Peter had been thinking about Psalm 118 because of what it says in verse 6. There the night before the jail, maybe he was running through it in his head where it says, the Lord is for me, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And it's speculation, but I'm guessing he was just singing some of those songs to himself and maybe the Holy Spirit leaned down and whispered into his ear. He's like, hey, while you're singing this song, let me reveal to you something about the cornerstone, something you're gonna be able to say tomorrow. Verse 12, there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people and we must be saved by it. When Peter used the word saved, it's the same word that he had used earlier in verse nine for healed. We are all just as much in need of God's intervention as the crippled man had been. And God has power over the body and over all of nature and over all of time and over death and the grave. He can save to the uttermost. He can heal. He can restore. He can rebuild. He can do all of these things. And all of us are in need of God's intervention to save us from our sins and then to transform us and strengthen us. But you see, the Sadducees were self-sufficient. What do I need God for? I have money. I've got you know, my position, I've got my comfort and my convenience. I'm not the one on trial here, but they were. They were wrong. But yet again, God was reaching out to them. He was trying to get their attention, trying to save them from themselves and do something truly meaningful with their lives. And we're gonna le read later in Acts to the credit of other people in the Sanhedrin. said a bunch of the priests start getting saved and added to the church, and that's a great thing. The Lord God has the same desire for each of us to intervene in our lives, to do something truly wonderful in our lives day by day. And the good news is that we as individuals and we as a group, we desire the Lord to do that. We're not blind to him. We're not rejecting him. And so 
Tonight, we invite the Lord to try us, to transform us, to fill us again, shake us free from any missteps that would draw us away from him. And like David, we invite him to search us and to lead us in his way everlasting. Amen.